Hello, and welcome to Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast from Fresh Energy. Fresh Energy is a Minnesota nonprofit working to speed our state's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Joe Olson. I do communications here at Fresh Energy, and I'm here today to share with you a recording of the second webinar in our truly affordable four-part series. In this discussion, Fresh Energy's Janice Watts and St. Paul City Council member Mitra Jalali discuss the connection between energy and housing stability. And with that, I will begin the recording. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everybody. Uh, I still see people coming into the room, but we're going to start right here on time. Uh, welcome, and uh, thank you uh, to everyone uh, for joining us today. Uh, this is part two of our truly affordable program. Every Thursday in July, our webinar series focusing on the intersection between energy efficiency, climate, and housing affordability. I'm Michael Noble. I'm the executive director at Fresh Energy. We're a Minnesota-based nonprofit, and we're focused on speeding the transition to an equitable, carbon-neutral economy for our state and beyond our state. Uh, last Thursday, we had an amazing speaker, Elizabeth Turner. Many of you were there. Uh, she described how, with the right architecture and the right building science, we can make amazing, super efficient, affordable housing that's carbon free. And you can uh, see a link to that recording. Uh, was included in your reminder link for today, but you can also find it on the Fresh Energy website. So the people who live in affordable housing are really a critically important part of this conversation and a critically important consideration in every part of this webinar series. Today, we're going to put the tenant perspective front and center as we look at the connection between energy and housing stability. Housing just isn't affordable if your utility costs are substantial and unpredictable. And now that we're in a time of economic hardship, energy efficiency can make homes healthier and more affordable over the long term. The idea of carbon neutral affordable housing is very, very much in the news now. Uh, just this week uh, from a podium, uh, Vice President Biden basically called that all new construction of all new buildings in America be carbon free by 2030. So let's get started with the housing we're encouraging here in Minnesota. Before we get started, I just want to uh, provide a shout out to our uh, sponsor for the event. It's the Stoll Reeves Law Firm. Uh, they've been gracious enough to support this uh, series. Uh, they're downtown Minneapolis and all over the US and they have a very strong uh, energy policy practice. If you have legal needs, talk to Stoll Reeves. I'd also wanna thank, uh, thank all of the promotional partners uh, who are listed there on your screen. Uh, these are folks who partnered with Fresh Energy to help spread the news about this event. And it's a reason why we have almost 100 people here already today. So uh, with that, I'm going to turn the program over to my incredible colleague, uh, Janice Watts. Uh, Janice is an associate, a policy associate in Fresh Energy's Energy Access and Equity Program. And she's going to introduce our remarkable speaker and manage the program from here. 
So thank you all for being here. Hey, thank you, Michael. Uh, welcome to everyone. Um, again, my name is Janice Watts. I am a policy associate at Fresh Energy in our Energy Access and Equity program. And I'm so very excited to be joined today by Mitra Jalali, Ward 4 City Council member uh, in the city of St. Paul. Mitra is a proud daughter of immigrants, a former classroom teacher, a community organizer, and policy aide, and now represents Ward 4 uh, on the St. Paul City Council. And I'm so glad to be having this conversation with you, Mitra, because you bring your experiences uh, to every conversation, and um, that's going to allow us to have a really awesome conversation and dig into this connection of energy and housing stability. Uh, so we will begin this presentation with Councilmember Jolly's uh, presentation for about 10 minutes. And then for the final 15 minutes, we will do a Q&A um, with questions from you all in the audience. So please use the Zoom Q&A feature uh, to submit your questions, uh, not the chat, please. And uh, with that, I'm going to hand it over to Mitra. Great. Awesome. Thank you, Janice. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Fresh Energy and everyone who's here. Uh, I'm Mitra Jalali. I represent Ward 4 now in the St. Paul City Council. And I wanted to start with just these pictures of <laughs> myself and then our cat. Um, we recently passed a huge tenant protections policy. And as part of that, um, lots of folks were using the hashtag RenterPowerSTP to talk about renting in St. Paul and the majority of our community who rents now. And um, I live by myself with my cat. Uh, I am um, sitting here in my apartment. <laughs> and I think this is the biggest Zoom I have done, like through all of coronavirus. I just want to note that um, you are all the biggest audience yet. Uh, so that's cool. Um, and I'm here actually because I, uh, I think a lot about how when you work in government and public policy, um, I think this is true in the energy space, in the housing space, in like every policy arena that I'm in now. Um, we, we talk about things in a way that dehumanizes them and even like the language of land use and planning that I'm exposed to all the time talks about like units, like units that are in a, a building and we don't even like think about how if you look at an apartment building, you could say, well, that's 12 units. Or you could say that's 12 homes and families. That's someone's home, right? A home isn't just like a big single family home. Uh, it's, it's anywhere that people can hang their hat. So um, we are, you know, reducing our carbon emissions from buildings. We're not talking about how that makes homes cleaner and easier to afford for folks who want to make their home in our community. Um, we just don't talk enough about how policies connect to the people who experience them. Um, and I just think that's uh, something I've been trying to undo. And uh, I'm excited to be here and try to talk about the human side of truly affordable housing, um, how to connect housing justice and climate justice because they're all part of racial justice. So um, to that end, uh, I'm a lifelong renter. Um, I've been working for 12 years now um, I'm the, in the workforce. I have a college degree. I'm the only person on my lease. And um, I say that because I had a lot of um, revelations trying to search for a place that I could afford to live by myself in our community um, with those uh, pieces that are often economic advantages in a market where there's a 2% um, vacancy rental rate. I can't tell you how many people I talked to during um, the last couple of years um, running for office and now serving in our city who said either we feel like we can't afford to live by ourselves at all, um, whether those are young people, seniors, elders, or any other combination, 
or families who said, uh, and there's data that proves this, there's just nowhere for us to rent. We cannot find a home that fits our growing needs as a family. We just cannot get into a house or an apartment with enough bedrooms at the rate that we can afford. And that's a huge threat to our community health. Um, so where, what does this have to do with energy? Well, a lot of the places people can afford to live in our community are older buildings. They're like the one I live in right now. And as our climate gets hotter, and as we've gotten through the last few extremely hot heat advisory weeks, uh, I've been doing what a lot of people, uh, thousands of folks across our city who live in buildings like mine do, which is uh, in older buildings that don't tend to have central air or other um, insulation or um, um, climate control materials, uh, I've got two AC window units that <laughs> um, out of desperation I went searching for sometime in, I don't remember when, even maybe it was like late May or early June. One of them is running at the back of the house. I hauled it off of the sidewalk for free in Midway. Literally, my aide, Matt Provatsky, lives down the street from where the, the, the AC window unit was. I was like, hey, um, can you randomly help me haul this thing? It's free and I like need it <laughs> or I'm going to die um, of heat. And I inherited the other from a friend. And those things cost a lot of money if you've gone out trying to look for a window unit. Sometimes they're like 100 freaking dollars. I don't just like have $100 laying around. Um, my energy bill is triple what it normally is right now. The summer utility bills hit really hard. The winter utility bills hit really hard. Um, these are uh, the things that tick and add up and disproportionately impact um, our community. Uh, if you read the book Evicted, um, I think that is one place where you detail like people put out because of electricity bills in, in poor quality housing and combined with their rent and it just piles up. Uh, you experience the trauma of utility shutoffs, displacement, um, being put out of your home. So at the daily uncomfortable end, it's heartburn um, financially and it's physical. It, it's like the heat of, or the cool and the discomfort. At the extreme end, this is a deep and painful societal crisis. It's a trauma. So I, I just open with all that because I just want um, people to feel a little of the heart and soul of, of where I'm coming from with this and what I think about as um, a council member now and, and who is impacted by energy efficiency or inefficiency and how that impacts affordability. Um, I think uh, I want to set the stage a little with where the city is at big picture and talk a little bit about what we're trying to do. Um, so I'd love if we could go to the next slide so I can move through that. So um, top line uh, in terms of our climate goals and our climate reality in the city of St. Paul, we just passed our climate action and resilience plan. Uh, one of the biggest focuses in that is making our buildings more efficient. Uh, this is because over half of our emissions come from buildings. Over half of the emissions that come out into the city are from our, our structures. Um, residential emissions, uh, orange parts on the left, those are smaller than industrial and commercial, um, but they have a much more significant impact on people living in our community. And every bit of that energy is entirely paid by our actual residents, and that cost is also not spread evenly. Um, if you go to the energy burden slide, the next one, um, this lays this out a little bit. So this is a slide, uh, this is a map of the city of St. Paul. Now, if you look at maps of the city of St. Paul where we are seeing racial disparities in housing, in uh, wealth inequality, in uh, where people have access to banking, uh, where people have access to transit, a lot of different indicators of opportunity and wealth and well-being, uh, this map and the disparities across neighborhoods and geography and race look similar for a lot of different indicators um, because our energy burden map mirrors the same racial disparities we see in virtually every other metric. For the Twin Cities metro region as a whole, the media energy, 
the median energy burden or how much of your income you pay toward energy bills for a household is 2.32%. Um, that metro-wide number is something that I just bring up because a lot of our housing goals get based on area median income. Um, and it skews all of our housing discussions because our city median income is less, but that 2.3% number is important. Um, because in parts of St. Paul, people actually pay below that uh, on energy. And based on this map, that is likely just because those areas are higher income and wider areas of the city. So we have some many folks in our community who can basically afford better, more efficient housing, and they have much less energy burden. And then in areas with inefficient homes, older buildings that haven't been kept up, um, that are just aging, uh, that are um, tough to find, uh, hard to afford, but then when you can get into them, it's it's kind of like part of the, the challenge of finding housing. And they're also more likely to be um, places that our communities of color can afford to live and, and then those energy burdens pile up. Um, if you go to the next slide, it'll show uh, when we're talking about who rents in our community. So uh, I think this is coming out a lot in every other slide I've said, but the, 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 the basis of a lot of this or the reality is that our families of color are more likely to rent than home, uh, to own a home, disproportionately experience housing discrimination and access issues uh, when they seek home ownership. Um, if you don't own your building, this also means you bear the brunt of energy costs and you don't have much direct power to change or reduce them. Um, that's how decades and generations of racist policies like redlining, like discriminatory lending, things that kept families of color from moving into ownership came to manifest today, is that you have less energy autonomy, you pay more energy burden, you pay more in burdens financially in the other areas of life from rent to cost of living to having access to jobs and um, connecting to transit, your ability to not have to depend on a car. There's all these things that add up that have climate and financial impact. And so when a tenant pays the monthly utilities and bears the cost of a drafty, inefficient building, but the landlord pays for the improvements that would actually reduce those costs, there's a split incentive. A landlord um, can't save real money by improving the home. A renter shouldn't be asked to invest their own money to reduce their bills when they don't even own the property. So what happens is we are relying on the good uh, will of individual landlords to take the place of good public policy that would solve the problem. Um, it would solve the problem systemically. So if you go to the next slide, which talks about goodwill as not being public policy. Um, we just had a big battle that I need to take a minute and just be very proud of, <laughs> where we basically had a big fight about how goodwill isn't public policy. It's just not. We passed a comprehensive tenant protections ordinance for the city of St. Paul that uh, improved uh, tenants' opportunity to access housing in our community. It uh, basically made it so that you can't discriminate on uh, renters because of criminal uh, credit or rental history that are commonly used to deny people housing access. It institutes uh, a policy to make sure that if your building gets sold, you get a 90-day notice of if that sale is going to occur. There's more time for an intervention to happen that could keep your building um, in community ownership or at, at affordability levels it previously was. You could get relocation assistance if you are put out of your building because it was sold. That's something that is slowly and increasingly happening across our city. Uh, and other things that are just part of an anti-displacement policy we need right now. And all throughout this process, and I uh, am happy that we have a picture of amazing organizers who um, helped pass this policy and who really led the way. Uh, if you want to, you can look up, it says in that little corner there, HENS, 
Housing Equity Now St. Paul. Just look up Housing Equity Now St. Paul. Um, this is a group of community organizations that formed actually during the pandemic because of everything people were going through in housing. And then they um, carried they carried the ball and carried the torch through our tenant protections process. But um, this is a hard fought victory and, and won by organizers who are deeply rooted in our communities. And if you wanna stay connected to their work going forward, you can go to Housing Equity Now St. Paul. Um, but what we would hear over and over again is, we don't need these tenant protections because landlords already do a lot of this anyway. Um, we don't need these tenant protections because it's a burden on landlords and landlords actually can exercise their benevolence and like just be good and rent to people and not discriminate. <laughs> um, and if you make us do it, then you're forcing us to rent to risky tenants. If you make us do it, you're going to force us to raise our rent. If you make us do it on and on and on and on and on. And I just think that um, we, we have let our society get away with saying that if you give people the things they need to afford their lives and have rights, that that is actually harmful. <laughs> um, there's just a perverse analysis happening with that. And um, at the end of the day, goodwill isn't public policy. You can't have your life be dependent on someone else doing the right thing. That's the whole point of being in the government and having a constitution and having civil rights and liberties and actual structures to enforce those, is that it's, it's the power of the law. So I'm really proud of our tenant protections ordinance we just passed, and we have a lot of work still to do to make sure the lived experience of renters in our community uh, actually uh, reflects the full range of what we need for sustainability, for equity, um, for um, community ownership, for building generational wealth, and for just living with dignity, no matter what your background is or where you live. So I think this next one's my last slide, um, but we'll go to our final slide and just, um, here's an inspiring chart. <laughs> but I did wanna try to just explain in one place or attempt to what we need to do to advance this work, building on what we've, we've done. Um, but simply put, we need to be building new housing and we need our new housing to be super affordable and super sustainable. Uh, our sustainable building policy in the city of St. Paul is really strong but it only impacts buildings that actually get city money. Um, so we actually need stronger building codes that apply to private development that uh, isn't necessarily receiving subsidy and conditions of subsidy because we need all new buildings to have super low energy bills, um, to have new development, um, build out new grids or that are sustainable uh, to focus and prioritize electric and other power so residents don't have to breathe in gas every time they cook so that we aren't at risk of um, the instability and um, possible explosive and other harmful negative physical things that can happen if you have poor gas hookups. All that's part of the transition to clean energy. Um, we need to make it easier for working people to take advantage of renewable energy programs that save money every month. Um, we need to be able to just let people know those programs exist. Lots of times folks don't know they can save money on their energy bill and we have to just use um, our public platforms as elected officials and community leaders and organizations to help this knowledge become widespread. One thing I learned in the government is there are a lot of things that exist to help people, but because community engagement, like really deep and broad community engagement and an ethos and way of doing government work that's about like thinking about how you can reach folks who feel very disconnected from like spaces of power and institutions, 
is that you just have to really like work 10 times as hard to communicate across language difference, um, across um, every single like barrier. And so we just need to help people um, know about and, and we're partner with organizations serving communities to make sure folks know they can take advantage of energy saving programs and cost saving programs. Um, we could look at reworking our franchise fee and franchise agreement to create a financial tool for that too. Um, energy disclosure on our truth and sale housing process is another thing we could do so that people know up front how much it will actually cost to live in their home, in their, in their apartment, in a rental unit. Minneapolis passed um, a truth and sale disclosure ordinance uh, that I was very interested in following at the time that it happened. And um, when I think about kind of what's next on the policy front, that's certainly something that we should think about coming back to. Um, and most of all, we need to dramatically ramp up our energy efficiency programs in smaller rental buildings and single family homes. So um, we need to rehab and support um, old building stock in becoming energy efficient because it helps improve the building's life over time. It brings down costs for those residents. Uh, it is a simple and cost effective way to solve multiple uh, housing challenges at once new housing is increasingly very expensive and costly to build. We have to do more to make new housing more efficient, but the vast majority or very, very um, high percentage of affordable housing buildings in our community right now um, just need some investment to help make those upgrades. Um, so we have the rental rehab loan program at the city of St. Paul that supports landlords in making uh, upgrades like that to properties so that it's basically a source of city funding to keep housing affordable and to be able to um, make energy efficiency improvements that have a tangible and financial impact on people's lives. So this is just some of all the things that we can do. Um, I actually really want to be a part of this conversation today because I wanna know what you think we could do and also what your analysis of this issue is because I think every time I talk to our community and learn more about the stories out there, it sharpens how I think about it. And it, it um, convicts me in a good way to do even more. And it also, um, it really helps me to just hear from people in the space and who are living this and are experts from their lived experiences or who uh, have even more depth of knowledge than I do on this topic. I'll tell you, my background is um, in the classroom as a, as a middle and high school social studies teacher. And I regularly say that since my three years in the classroom, I now feel like most of the jobs I do after that are probably not going to be very hard. Um, <laughs> being a middle school teacher for social studies is like the toughest, best job I've ever done. Um, but I went from there into community organizing and worked on campaigns for education funding. I, I worked on the um, most recently, before I became a councilwoman, I actually was on the district office staff of then Congressman Keith Ellison, and I was his immigration and public safety aide, and over the years have seen all these different systems and how they're impacting um, families like mine and communities of color broadly, and now I bring that focus to the work I'm trying to do as a councilwoman. So um, Fresh Energy for, for me is like a learning place as much as it is a, a sharing knowledge space. So uh, with that, um, would love to know your thoughts, questions, and comments, and excited to be here to learn together. Thank you so much, Mitra. That is, was a really great presentation, and you raised so many important points that uh, we're going to dig into. Um, but before we do that, I have to uh, remind you all that this webinar series, Truly Affordable, will return next 
Thursday with a conversation between my colleague Ben and uh, uh, Gina of the Healthy Building Network. Um, so you can see that on your screens, it'll be next Thursday. And they're gonna be discussing why healthy affordable housing is so hard to make happen, uh, just in, in building and uh, why, what are those barriers there? And a recording of this webinar will be posted at the Fresh Energy website, so freshenergy.org slash publications. And on our podcast, we have a podcast. It's called Decarbonize, the Clean Energy Podcast. And you can learn more about Fresh Energy's work at, again, our website, www.freshenergy.org. And here you can subscribe to our newsletters, you can check out our latest blogs, and you can make a donation. And so on behalf of everyone here at Fresh Energy, thank you for attending uh, this week's series of uh, Truly Affordable. And with that, we're gonna get into the questions. So um, I'd really love to just pick up on what you um, gave this great presentation on, Mitra, and all your great work on uh, making sure that renters um, have not only access to affordable housing, but like this, the fact that like housing is a human right. And, and, and housing can't just be affordable, it has to be equitable and accessible and safe. Um, so I'm curious how you feel, I mean, you, you started to mention, um, like with the truth and sale housing and energy disclosure, um, how you see these kind of protections uh, as a platform to elevate energy efficiency um, so that energy and environmental justice are really core pillars of housing stability. Um, well, one of the biggest um, key components that was passed is the advance notice of sale policy. So advance notice of sale in the, in the ordinance makes it so that uh, you get a 90 day notice if your building is going to be sold. And then you get a 90 day protection period um, if and after your building is sold. And then also you are eligible for relocation assistance if you are displaced as a result of the sale. Um, that is a very, very critical uh, protection for folks experiencing the turnover of their buildings. It also is important because it lays the groundwork for tenant opportunity to purchase, which is um, a policy by which more and more communities are seeing renters being able to buy their buildings. And then through that ownership, they then have renewed power uh, to actually shape um, what the energy reality is on the building to be able to qualify for more programs and incentives that help them do that. And so helping people move to community ownership is actually, I think, one of the big conduits that then has like energy and other um, um, equity outcomes. And if we, uh, if we can support um, NOAA, is what I'll say is naturally occurring affordable housing is the acronym, but a lot of the, in the policy, it talks about buildings that are um, of any unit threshold uh, apply to the sale. So if you live in a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex or five or more units, um, your building falls into the policy as written. And a lot of the um, neighborhoods across St. Paul that are most vulnerable to displacement and often um, are home to many of our communities of color, um, low-income families and folks who are renting, uh, it's it's our it's our neighbors in duplexes and triplexes and, and fourplex and more buildings uh, in Frogtown and in Rondo and in Midway uh, in um, the east side and the west side and in pockets throughout the city everywhere. So when I think about the scale of a policy like that to facilitate community ownership to slow down displacement and to eventually help people be able to um, keep those buildings affordable and make improvements to them, that's really important. So I think that is one of the through lines or the continuations um, 
yeah, I think that it, we have laid groundwork through this for future work that we have to do, and I think that's really important. Totally. That, yeah, there's definitely a lot to um, to follow up with and to um, be able to really incorporate energy efficiency into the Senate Protections work. Um, the question from Yordi here is, uh, is there a way to raise the standards um, to like redefine what affordable housing truly means from a policy standpoint? Um, yeah, to really kind of like put some definitions around affordable housing or even the naturally occur uh, occurring affordable housing. Yes, so um, this one of the core places where this is just broken and needs to be better is that federal housing definitions uh, use a metric called area median income, which in our community includes not just St. Paul, but the basically metro area, which includes a lot of wealthier suburbs and, and communities as the sort of average, averaged out like income measure and city median income for the city of St. Paul, if you're just talking about city median income, it is, it, it translates to hundreds of dollars a month in rent less than what the actual like federal definition would do. So that's why so much new development that we see at something like 60% AMI or 80% or 40% or whatever percent of the area median income, when you actually pencil it out to what people living in our community make, it falls short of what we need, pretty far short in a lot of cases. Um, so the, the, there's a false kind of inflation around affordable housing definitions, and that has to get fixed. I think there's a lot of fixes at the federal level because, well, not only do they set those definitions, but the federal government has incredibly abdicated its responsibility to clean and affordable housing, just full stop, for decades. Like we are in, living through right now in our communities, sort of a collision of longtime forces of um, previous administrations of the federal government and White Houses and Congresses saying, we are getting out of public housing, for example, and just not building any more public housing. Mm -hmm. um, the legislation that's very um, increasingly visible uh, around the Green New Deal for public housing and the effort to basically create like a massive effort to build thousands more public housing units to make those buildings super efficient and affordable and to employ our community in the construction and development of those homes is an example of a response to that like long-standing neglect. Mm. Um, so we need to, we need to um, be, I think cities often are fighting like by ourselves is a harsh way to put it, but I do really feel like there's a giant piece of the equation that has been missing for a really long time and it is millions and billions and trillions of dollars in federal funding that we do not get to make up the resource gap to subsidize the homes we're building so that they're more affordable, to keep up the property that we have, to massively expand public and clean uh, housing, clean energy housing. And that is, um, it is just, it's not possible to talk about like reforming the definition of affordable housing without also just connecting all those dots. And so that's something that I care a lot about. I'm a city councilwoman, so I'm often working at the city with city tools, but um, but everyone has a stake in our community being affordable and sustainable. So every level of government needs to do their part. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, well, it is 1230. And so I do want to say um, to those of you who have to hop off now, thank you for joining us. Um, but we will stay on for um, a few more minutes to answer a few more questions. Um, I think there's a, there's a question here that I think you're kind of speaking to, Mitra, um, kind of like the big picture question. Um, and it's from Susan. Um, how do you get people to care about energy efficiency and green energy if they don't self-identify as environmentalists? Or even if they do, or if they do, are more concerned with bread and butter issues, um, people meaning those you represent and your fellow elected officials. Um, so, like, how do we talk about environmental and climate justice? I think on a much broader scale in ways that actually connects with um, so many other issues and, and that people are facing. Yeah. Well, um, I'm still learning how to draw these connections too. So I'll just say that, but. I, I often, in so many issue areas, actually just talk about the concept of home. I talk about the concept of home and like the values and the emotions behind that, which are safety and belonging and comfort and closeness and just like a place of your own, a sense of um, autonomy, um, the freedom and the health benefits you get from just like having a home. And when we talk about home and frame things in terms of home, suddenly it makes sense to people. Suddenly we realize that we're talking about, this is about folks' ability to stay in our communities. This is about how untenable that's going to become if they are priced out of neighborhoods due to the lack of energy availability or efficiency or affordability. It will be uh, at its most extreme, a huge crisis in every area if we don't address the climate crisis that is going to hit working communities and communities of color first and hardest and already is. And when you start to really like focus on home and the everyday experience of people who are really just fighting for home. It suddenly opens up the conversation in a much bigger way and people find inroads to that. And I, I think there are a lot of ways that people can put words to it, but a lot of the time over the past couple of years, I realized that at the end of the day, what I've been talking about more than anything is home. <laughs> and, and that like, no matter what your background is or who you are, everybody wants to feel like they belong and like they have safety and dignity like where they are. And the climate justice movement is actually also fundamentally about that. It is about the planet as our home, right? And so it, there's just a lot within that. And so I, I, that is how I would do it as someone who um, often is the one trying to like knit all these people together into it. But I think it's a really good and important question. Yeah, um, but I love that. I really do. Like, I mean, that I feel my heart opening up when you start talking about home, right? Because that that is at the end of the day what all of us need, um, and and really want to be able to share and like make sure everyone's taken care of. That that is a basic need, but it's also um, where where we find our comfort and joy and safety is in our home where everyone should be able to find that. Um, Cameron uh, posted a question here that I think kind of gets at this as well is, how would the discussion about potential solutions change if we decouple private ownership of land and housing as the tool to develop wealth in this country mm -hmm. from housing being a basic human right and need? And then he goes on to say, what's your anti-capitalistic view <laughs> and vision for housing and wellness? Mm -hmm. Well, what's <laughs> up, Cameron? I appreciate that. And I love, I mean, I think this is kind of like the, the shift we're all trying to get to. I think this is like the political shift on a macro level we're all trying to get to is just um, commodifying land and housing and how that capitalistic framework then forces us to like react in the market that we have versus trying to actually like 
a lot of folks say things like decolonize, right? Like decolonize how we think about land and home. And I think that is, um, in the structures that I'm familiar with in the government, we at minimum need a massive shift in investment. Like we need to just in the government space, like make a huge uh, divestment and reinvestment in the systems that give people what they need as like a basic human dignity. But then uh, I even think about the work there's to do beyond that to then um, make sure that we're not replicating harm in that process and that government is not um, in the process of doing that, like actually displacing community from community village models that have existed for, for centuries to be able to like self-determine. So I think that's a big question, but it's an important one. And I think when you like start to shift into that frame, you stop thinking about like, how can we trickle down wealth and sort of um, work on the problem over here and hope it catches over there <laughs> and actually like go to the heart and like really upend what we're doing. So um, I think that's a very, I think I'll be thinking on that question too, even just giving like a, in my first 30 seconds of reaction answer, it opens up more things for me to, to reflect on. Mm. Thank you. Um, let's see. Uh, there's a question here that's got a couple of votes, so we'll take it from the top here, if that's okay. It's about the Ford Development site. Um, so the Ford Development is a huge opportunity to implement affordable, efficient housing. Is it possible the zoning will be in place to require this in time to implement them in the Ford Development site? Um, so maybe if you if you have any thoughts about mm -hmm. um, how the Ford Development uh, site has. Um, uh, progressed over time and um, the idea of those uh, units being affordable and efficient and what kind of opportunity that uh, could, uh, could pose for the city of St. Paul. Yes, um, so the Ford development is a huge opportunity to implement affordable efficient housing. Uh, you absolutely nailed it, Melissa. And um, so because the Ford site is going to be subsidized uh, in large part through TIF financing and TIF will be a part of the equation, um, the Ford site will be built to the city's sustainable building policy standards. So they will be efficient and I believe it's built into what is already approved. But what I've been pushing for and what I'd love to see us do to go even further is to actually go above what the building uh, policy requires and try to be all electric and anywhere possible, not hooking up gas on the site and things that would be like the difference between um, the best in the status quo to like actually trying to create something beyond that. And so um, one of the things that is a strength of the plan is those requirements in place through how we're financing and, and building it out. But um, we could miss some opportunities if we don't push and try to go even further. So I'm excited about that for Ford and I would be remiss if I um, didn't bring up that I guess the Ford site has been renamed to Highland Bridge, but I think that many in our community will continue to call it the Ford site for a long time. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's a great question and also just funny timing given the news of the week. The, the, the local angle of the week, Ford site is now Highland Bridge, but you should go on Twitter and get all of the takes on that because people have opinions. So I've been enjoying reading those too. I can imagine people have opinions about yeah. <laughs> being called the Highland Bridge. Yes. <laughs> um, well, cool. Very uh, uh, interesting news that we are hearing first here in this webinar. Um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a question here from Lee. Um, what could St. Paul do to let residents and businesses have an inclusive financing option for doing energy efficiency improvements, um, formerly known as a tariff-based on bill repayment plan. Uh, Minneapolis plans to have a pilot project soon. Um, and I think this also kind of gets at something you mentioned in your presentation, Mitra, about um, 
kind of uh, what is that community engagement? Like, how do we help people even know what uh, what options are out there, whether they're maybe coming and we want to advocate for them to to become policy options here in St. Paul or um, the NRDPT programs that do exist that are just sometimes really tough to navigate and to, to know that uh, whether you're a renter or a property owner, um, that, the, that they're out there for you to take advantage of. Well, I think that um, I would want to learn more from our utility partners who typically structure a lot of how those things work, but we are always connecting with our Minneapolis partners to see where we can learn from their experiences. Uh, I got to be a part of, um, uh, conversations a while back about just community power and how the corporatization of energy utilities then impacts the autonomy that we can have in even trying to have more inclusive financing and other options. Um, so I would like to learn more and, and learn from Minneapolis on that front and um, also just been thinking a lot about how the um, when we talk about financing affordable housing and affordability and energy efficiency, a piece of that is that some of the biggest corporations in our country are the biggest polluters and climate exacerbators and then pay very, very little of their fair share. And we need aggressive tax reform so that we can stop that terrible cycle because sometimes I feel like we are working like way down the ladder in what we need to do to retool what, what we have down here. But there's something way more macro happening up above that is like, they're getting away with it. <laughs> they're just getting away with it and we are living in a reality of scarcity when the actual reality is abundance. Like abundance politics is the truth. So just macro thoughts on a very specific question, but it, does, it did make me think about that and I wanna make sure I include that. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> there's a good uh, uh, message in the chat that says hashtag tax reforms. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, and, and I think you're right that there is, there are so many uh, larger forces at play here that we um, feel from, uh, from like a global scale down to our local scale of like, what is, what's really happened in our society and why are we in the places that we are where communities of color, BIPOC people face disparities in every metric, like you mentioned in your presentation, um, that the energy burden, that map that you showed, um, follows the same pattern um, when it comes to other um, metrics uh, in life that we that we use to um, measure quality of life. And, and so that there, that because that is, I said the truth, <laughs> what are we, we have to finally get to a place of looking at what do we have in abundance? And, and, it's, and also looking at the solutions from the people who are facing those disparities the most. And so I, that's why I really appreciate this work that you do, Mitra, with elevating uh, renters, people who do, you know, and, and communities of color, people who often don't have a voice when we have these conversations around housing and environmental policy, uh, even though uh, the, whether intended or not, uh, the consequences come down hardest on our communities of color. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. And um, thank you for the chance to be part of this. I, I was going to ask, there's so many good questions in the, um, the oh, it's not the chat, there's like a chat and then a Q&A. I'm like not Zoom fluent at all. I'm sorry. But um, is there a way to like be able to bundle them too and we can respond? Because there are some good specific ones too that we didn't get to, but I know our office could work on them and get back to folks even if we can't on the call. I'd like to be able to do that if there's a way. Oh, yeah, I think absolutely. We, uh, we yeah, we can definitely take, um, yeah, for those of you who are not going to get the uh, get to your questions, um, 
as Councilmember Jalali just said, you really love to take your questions from the Q and A. And and so if you if you have something and you want to like get it in there, so that so she can take them back to her office and be able to follow up with you. Um, I'd say get it in there now while we have a two more minutes before we close out here. Um, and uh, so we'll give folks a few time for that. So maybe we'll take just one more and uh, we'll see how we go from there. Um, let's see. I kind of like this one. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on what deep energy conservation programs look like. Any energy savings goals that differentiate between regular conservation programs? Um, and the comment ends with, I feel like deep energy ref retrofits isn't always strictly defined. Another, another uh, question about like definitions and, and, and how, we, um, how we measure uh, these programs that, are, um, that we have in the city <laughs> and how you see a, a programs working or not working for, uh, for Yeah, um, I think I would need to learn more about this, to be honest. So I would like to know what's out there that are good models that are working. Um, I think that in general, as we figure out how are we going to finance um, conservation and new energy, that we need to look at how we can recycle financially in addition to what we're doing um, with the energy that's being recycled. Because we have a revolving loan program, for instance, that the St. Paul, the city created that basically pays the savings forward and it finances future um, energy improvements. And like, how do we actually um, make sure that these are economically sustainable in addition to actually sustainable? So I would love to learn more on that one. That's not a question I feel like I have a good answer to, but um, part of why I said I come to these uh, uh, ener fresh energy events is that I always leave with like five new things to think about. So. Um, and, and I would love to steal all of the Q&As too so that we can go over it at the end and get answers to folks. Well, Mitra, is there any, any final comments you would like to leave uh, uh, with our guests in the webinar here? Let's see. Um, well, I think this is like the most substantive <laughs> 45 or however long we've been on minutes of my day. Um, I'm really grateful to all of you for your commitment to seeing the intersections of these issues and for the chance to um, just make some room for me. And I'm learning a lot all the time as a councilwoman. I think um, I ran as an, a, a, like an everyday person who didn't necessarily see myself in the language of like land use and city processes or zoning or urban planning or things that get like professionalized and, and explained in academic terms. I wanted people to feel like we could shape our community together and to like democratize the structures of the city um, for our collective self-determination. And when we talk about that in the energy space, I think it just becomes even more relevant and necessary. So um, I've appreciated the chance to do some of that with you here today. And I hope that we can all stay connected. Um, I'm on Twitter. The official like office account is at Ward4STP because that's like where we do all of our um, office hours and uh, updates and live city council. Like everything that is just like live from St. Paul City Hall, go to Ward4STP. And then um, my aide, Matt Pervratsky, uh, has also been tremendous. And if you go on there, you'll find him close by. But um, Matt is also a former powerhouse staffer at Fresh Energy, and um, I'm very grateful to have him on our team too, and we together work to serve our community. And then, um, I, yeah, I would just say stay connected to us. I'd love to hear more and learn more from you and get the chance to work together some more. So thanks. Thank you so much, Mitra. Yeah, I, I highly recommend that you follow Mitra on Twitter because I definitely keep up with everything in St. Paul because of her. <laughs> 
Thank you. Um, and thank you to everyone to, who uh, submitted questions um, and joined us for this uh, episode, part two of the Truly Affordable webinar series. Thank you. Awesome. Appreciate everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the audio recording of our webinar. You can stay up to date on Fresh Energy's work via our blog at fresh-energy.org or follow us on social media. In the meantime, thank you everyone for listening and subscribing to our podcast. You can support Fresh Energy's work by making a donation today. Visit our website at fresh-energy.org and click donate in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.